This is Lunch Pail VC, presented by Bullpen Capital. Each week, host Randy Comisar and I, Paul Martino, go deep into the nuts and bolts of all aspects of the venture capital business. And no, we don't ice the kicker, but we do give you a no-bull look into the VC business. We talk with exceptional VCs about all sorts of topics, including deal sourcing, deal selection, selection of your fund size, just to name a few. Welcome back to another edition of Lunch Pail VC, where there is no fleece allowed. We give you a no-bull look at the industry of venture capital. I'm one of your hosts, Paul Martino, managing partner of Bullpen Capital, along with my friend and co-host, the captain of the cap table, <laughs> Mr. Randy Comasar from Kleiner Perkins. Hey, Paul. It is truly great to be back. Uh, missed you most of August. Today, we're going to explore a fundamental topic, the thesis-driven fund. Our guest today is Yuri Kim from Forerunner Ventures, where they invest in brands who transform culture and redefine industries. That's right. And sticking to our thesis is something we preach at Bullpen, because quite frankly, our thesis is to not have a thesis. <laughs> we are stage-specific but sector agnostic. And so we're very excited to talk to Yuri about a very different strategy that is much more sector-specific. We sometimes pass on good companies because they're outside of our stage. And I'm sure that Yuri passes on some companies that are great that are outside her thesis. It can be tough, but that discipline does lead to a healthier fund and better returns. Well, as difficult as it is to live with a thesis, within a thesis, the explosion in a number of venture funds makes the fund's thesis important for deal sourcing and selection and for fundraising and messaging to LPs. Exactly. It's often the first question you get asked when you sit down with a potential LP. So you better have a well-thought-out answer before you start your own fundraise. Well, we're going to learn a lot about that from Yuri, about Forerunner's thesis, and our advice to anyone else starting a new fund. And with that, Yuri Kim, GP at Forerunner, welcome to LunchPail VC. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Paul. Great to have you. Question number one, what is Forerunner's thesis? How did we get there? And tell me how it's evolved. We have had the same thesis for the 10 years we've been in business, which is we're looking to back visionary founders who are building category-defining companies. We do that uniquely through the, the lens of the consumer. And we have an edit for founders who share a nuance and a desire to build generational defining brands. That might not be the thesis you, you thought we had. And, and I think that that's the most important thing is, what is a thesis? When we started in 2012, there were no seed funds. There was only a few firms out there that were investing super early. It wasn't a thing. And so when we started, Kirsten started the firm, um, investing in companies that she realized were starting to pick up on changing behavior with the consumer, that the consumer, this millennial, was on these phones all the time. And this thing called Facebook was kind of interesting. And suddenly, these conversations that would have happened in stores and in malls were happening online, in social. In her career, she had always been following the consumer. She saw the rise of a lot of different behavioral changes. The rise of the malls in the 90s was a huge one. When you make a mall and everybody goes there to hang out, that's a new place to commune. And so you saw a lot of different companies come to life. 
So our thesis has always been understanding the consumer and the changing behaviors and needs of their own lives such that we can look at where new experiences can come to market that are ultimately unlocked with technology. But the thing with that is that is a broad thesis. It allows you to invest not in a sector, but across sectors. And as a result, you look at our portfolio and you know, Fund One had, I think it was 30% of our dollars were in B2B companies. They were not the sexy ones that everybody heard about because it was Warby, it was Birchbox, it was Bonobos. And you know, Dollar Shave Club was our first investment in Fund One. Those are the ones that people wanted to talk about in market, and so that's what we ultimately gained a reputation for, these early direct-to-consumer brands. But we had always been investing behind the entire experience. So, you know, what do people want to buy? Where do they want to buy? How are companies going to deliver that experience to them? And ultimately, that allows you to grow with your thesis and not be boxed in by your thesis. So is brand one of the critical early stage elements that you look for? Or is brand the end result of all these other things coming together successfully? Oh, that is a good question, Randy. We spend a lot of time actually thinking about it because people will come come to us and say, we want to have Foreigner invest in our business because we really care about brand and we want you to help us build it. And I've got to disappoint them and say, it turns out I am not in the business of building brands. That is not my job. It is not my expertise. But then we, we got to thinking about why our portfolio companies and the founders we decide to work with and who choose to work with us end up with what feels like notable brands in market. And I think the answer to your question, Randy, is you don't have a brand when you're a startup, right? Like you're just a PowerPoint presentation, a founder with an idea, but there is no brand to speak of because you don't have a company. But the brand grows with the mission that you're looking to put in market, the, the problem you're trying to solve, but most importantly, all the different ways you're trying to coordinate your effort to solve the problem for the consumer. And so, I mean, I guess the, the answer to your question is it's what comes from all the work that goes into decades of work and company building, but there are nuances that you can look for very early in a founder, in a team, in a proposition that have the DNA that could have a better chance of creating a brand that matters and a business that matters because we brand is a business. It's not a you know, fashion label. It's not a logo. It's not a color scheme. It's the company. It's, it's the company. I think that's well said. You mentioned Dollar Shave Club, which I think is a great example. When you first saw that company, and that company sort of lends itself from day one to looking like a brand, almost from the moment they come in and pitch you, right? Yep. Um, and I can remember at Kleiner Perkins, we were early investors, I think probably around the same time you were at The Seed. I think Aileen Lee led that. But we had a very hard time following on because we kept looking for what was defensible other than the fact that we had a really charismatic CEO, founder, and a great you know, two-minute video. And otherwise, <laughs> it was open season on this marketplace. So how yeah. did you reconcile with that when people like me were really challenged by following on with that early stage investment? Well, I'll tell Kirsten's story because she led that investment. And it was a bet on Michael and his vision and what he thought the problem was, which was it had to do with the fact that men shave 
oftentimes every day, and you think about the purchase experience of buying a shaver. You got to go to the pharmacy and it's locked behind the cashier's wrap like like a gun or something. And you got to ask somebody to get it out. You don't know it's you know some are blue, some are green. You don't you don't really know anything about them. It it's it's a terrible experience of something that is a consumable product that you really find inconvenient and and don't look forward to going and buying. And so in that moment it was Michael, I want to build a brand that speaks to the new consumer, this guy, the guy that could be 18, could be 80, but just like is like a good guy, wants to have fun, you know, enjoys sports, enjoys hanging out. And the last thing I want to do is go into a CVS or a Walgreens and ask somebody to go and open up this locked counter so that I can get a shaver. And so what he was presenting in that early sort of pitch was it's a big market, you know, it's unbranded. Well, it's not unbranded because Gillette is the monopoly brand. But that that purchase experience of being in retail only, that there was a disconnect of the new consumer who was online. And so could we start a relationship with this guy who is online, who is on social, who doesn't want to go in the store, and he needs a shaver. And over Mm. time, he'll need shaving cream. And he might need body wash. And he might need butt wipes. (laughs) And, you know, and can we make that a fun experience that people want to be a part of? And so the bet was that you would earn the right to deliver more to the customer because they felt like you got them. And that, that was the pitch. Yeah, he lost me at butt wipes when I <laughs> when I when I imagine he lost us at butt wipes too. But you know, it, it's funny. I still see those, you know, in people's I bathrooms, know, and they I crack know. me up. I know, know and, I know, I know. You, you, and, you see them in the sewer systems all the time. Well, you're not supposed to put them in the toilets. Every, every, you know. I have toddlers, so I still have you know wet wipes around. Well, Yuri, look, it's always a pleasure when we talk about personal care and butt wipes to kick this off. But I do want to get back to the piece on brand. <laughs> Because because you guys have built a tremendous brand at Forerunner. Congrats on raising a billion-dollar fund, right? I mean, that is a huge milestone for any venture fund. Talk to us about the similarities of building a brand at Forerunner and building a brand at, say, Dollar Shave Club. What's similar? What's different? And uh, what lessons do you then impart on your founders because you've built such a great brand yourself? I would say the greatest lesson is that the work is never done. And what I so respect in my partner, Kirsten, she is a founder. She is the founder of Forerunner and sees our business as a company, not just a venture firm that is supposed to invest in companies, but we are a team. We are a brand and market. We sell ourselves as investors and partners to founders, and founders are our customers. And in the very beginning, when it was just her working out of her own office and she hadn't met me yet, she didn't have a fund. She still had a firm. She had a business card. She had a website. Because in her mind, she foreshadowed what it needed to look like to be a full entity and not just a GP making investments that happens to have a name on the website. And so when you start your business with intentionality for long-term sustainable growth, you act differently. You set up infrastructure in a way where we always presented Forerunner as a firm and a team. She didn't want it to be the Kirsten Green Show, otherwise she could have called it the Kirsten Green Firm. But from the beginning, we always talked about ourselves as a firm 
that had a vision, that had a thesis, and really we were coordinated in that effort. And as a result, every interaction any founder or person in market would have from someone at Forerunner was consistent. And that is one of the most important things of building brand, is reliability and consistency. You show up, you say what you're going to do, you do it, and you keep on doing it for 10 years. And you got to do it better and better because people's expectations are constantly evolving, and, and that's the hard thing too. You could have been a great brand in year one, two, and three, but if you get lazy and you don't continue to invest and continue to sanity check like what's happening in market, where are my consumers' heads going, what is the market doing, then you're going to lose your edge. And so we are constantly improving ourselves. We are never resting on what you know, I hope is a great brand, but it will only be as great as the next thing that we do tomorrow. And that's very consistent with the founders that we back. And do you have people on staff who help them in particular with building their brands? I mean, are you seen as sort of brand building specialists in your organization? Or is that simply just part of who you are? I think the latter, Randy, because mm-hmm. we don't have any brand builders on staff. And I, again, I've been in way too many brand agency kickoff calls for you know someone who's not an expert in building brands. But when you do it for 10 years over 100 companies, you start to see some pattern recognition. But the benefit of having us at the table is that we speak a similar language as the founder about like why we're here. Why does this company need to be in existence? I think our founders feel heard and they feel mm. like someone gets like, I know it doesn't look very good today, but I swear, I see it in my mind, I see it out there, and I want that vision to be personified in market. And and we work with them to try to do that. I think the other thing is when you have existing companies that are brands that other founders look to for Mm. inspiration, that draws a certain community. And I think it's sort of an implicit understanding that everybody has. Like They want to be part of this group because something about this group speaks and feels similarly, which is they're push- they don't all look the same, and they certainly don't have the same customers, but they all value what this means as a, you know, again, back to that word DNA, as like an implicit understanding. One of the things that, that I think is fascinating about your model is, quite frankly, it is a model that scares the pants off a lot of other people in venture. <laughs> Talking about <laughs> consumer behavior, talking about future brands, talking about future consumer behavior. You know, Forerunner's gotten it right a lot more than it's gotten it wrong. Talk to us a little bit about what you're doing to some extent to predict the future. I know you're backing star founders that you love, but what are you doing to kind of get it right as often as you are? Because predicting the consumer is a pretty hard task. I mean, no crystal balls here, despite what you might think. And we get it wrong a lot. You know, just as every other venture firm, if you weren't getting it wrong, you probably aren't trying hard enough. But I think what helps is that there's no preconceived notion of what the world needs to look like in the future. And as a result, since we're not going from the output or the outcome, we're just listening to what people are saying now. And we're trying to understand if you're in your 50s right now and you're very technology-enabled, you are most certainly dealing with some life stages that are very consistent to most human experiences. Not everybody, but there's a lion's share of people who are, if you had kids and and did have a family, maybe you're becoming an empty nester. If you didn't, then maybe you're thinking about priorities around health. Uh, Maybe you have aging parents that you need to care for. 
And so those are needs that you don't need to be a magician to figure out. Like that's just everyone on this call probably has some selection of those problems that we're navigating. And they're very difficult problems to solve. And they take a long time to solve it. You don't stop dealing with aging parents until they've finished aging and pass away. So for a very long period of time, you're doing something manually, under duress, with not enough services, not certainly no technology. And so is there an opportunity for technology to make that better? Probably. Hmm. And so we don't come with a guess as to how it has to be fixed. Hmm. We just feel conviction that those are needs that are so deep in our lives that if you could fix them, it would be meaningful. Hmm. And so how our founders looking at that problem, how are they thinking about fixing that problem and, and being a trusted resource for these consumers over time? How are they suggesting to go to market and get sort of one thing right? But then how, how could you take that wedge that we all talk about, you know, and, and how do you grow that over time to become a bigger platform, a bigger business, one that lasts? And so it isn't as much of a crystal ball as just, you know, everybody who's paying for anything, an app, a doctor's appointment, you know, wood planks for your remodel, <laughs> steel beams for building a business. Like, that's all a human being putting money to work. Like, robots aren't buying things. But what differentiates this from that? Is it the technology? Is it a feature? Or is it who's actually using this platform versus another platform? And why do their needs differ in a way that would require its own platform? Hmm. And ultimately, when you think about that user, you, you kind of get there. Yeah, let me ask a question that may be slightly politically incorrect, but being, <laughs> being, being a brand-challenged male, meaning that I still shop brands, in fact, I'm, I'm very suspicious of brands, I'm always looking for the <laughs> Avis to the Hertz out there, and I'm always shopping specs and not looking for you know, the, the messaging. Um, at Kleiner, you know, the best brand investors were people like Aileen Lee and, and Mary Meeker. And, and so is, is there some female <laughs> insight? Chrom chromosome problem here? <laughs> into into, into, into uh, brand? Is, it, is there something that, you know, sort of the male and female experiences are different as they approach shopping or messaging in consumer products? Maybe. Hmm. Uh, and I, it is controversial. So here's where I'll go with that. Some people are more transactional, uh, transaction-minded. Some people are more relationship-minded. Tends to be that women like to build relationships. Tends to be that most men that I have in my life are fairly transactional. And so when you're transactional, you need specs to be right, and then you actually don't care who's giving it to you as long as it's the best price and it comes fast. And that's great. That's what you want and that's what you value as a consumer. I can only speak for myself, but you know, and I don't know if it has to do with being a woman or not, but if I'm going to give my money to somebody, I'd like it to be a place that I feel good about. Mm -hmm. And as long as all the products are equal, I would like to find a company that, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I, I like it's pretty. I like I like seeing sort of this packaging coming, or I like the mission that this person has in market or right. this company has in market. Or I like I just like what they stand for. I like this founding story. And so there's more to that purchase than just the screwdriver. Right. And, right. you know, I would ask you, though, Randy, what's your favorite company? Like, what's, what's the company that you're just like, when you need something, you go to and you trust that it's going to get done? 
Hmm. You know, um, interesting enough, probably Amazon. You know, that's a controversial answer in a way because Amazon is so many different things to so many different people. And there's lots of the Amazon story that repels me, you know, what this done to communities and local stores and local main streets. But as a consumer, all they do is give me satisfaction. All Absolutely. The time, right? And Amazon is a great brand for many people. And you might not think, well, wait a minute, Amazon's not a brand. Because I think the tee up to your question was, I intuit that you think brand means premium. Mm-hmm. Brand, brand means mm-hmm. expensive. Brand mm-hmm. means pretty. Mm-hmm. It's not it. Mm-hmm. Brand is a company that has earned your trust. And it's a business that will endure because it does something that's important to its consumers. We... We often think like, you know, people ask us, well, what brands do you really like? And it's not some magic secret, you know, code of companies over here. Like we look towards Patagonia. What a great brand has lasted for generations. Yeah. You know, on the earlier side, a Warby Parker, a a Dollar Shave Club, not because they're successful, but because they're successful over time. They were for years building their relationship with customers and continuing to serve their mission. And there are early sort of cult, hot new brands, and that's a different type of brand. That's a, you know, maybe it's a niche brand, maybe it's a hot for now brand, and those are great too. But when we look to back founders who are building generational businesses, you need much more than hot. You need to be thinking in a more enduring way. And so I would would say from this podcast, if, if Randy, I can convince you to think about brand differently, like I, I feel like that would be successful um, because men have brands that they trust. You know, my husband loves Craftsman Tools because mm. he believes that they are more reliable. Mm. And he's tried to buy the cheaper ones on Amazon and they break and it drives him crazy. I'll have to, t- I'll have to tell him about some of the other brands. And Ooh, are there? Tools. Oh, yes. I don't need more tools in our really house. Really great ones. <laughs> I will but, say batteries are one thing. We try, we try to buy the cheap Amazon batteries and they go out of, you know, their service every day. I'm like, this is, this is disaster. Duracell. There are two companies that I was involved with that I think had just lovely brands, um, TiVo and Nest. And they were delightful in their inception, but that was before they meant anything. I mean, when we had that little TiVo man, that little TiVo TV being able to jump around on the set, it didn't mean anything yet. It just, it just was delightful. And when we came up with the Nest home and had that little icon up there, the, high, the concept of Nest, the coziness of that name was delightful. But they were meaningless, right? They, didn't mean, they weren't brands. They were trademarks or image. And ultimately, they became brands. I would, I would just say that somebody was in the room thinking about what they wanted it to mean over time. And that's where the spark of something more enduring can be seen in the earliest stages. And you'll just have to see if you can execute and really bring it to life. One of the other things that we've noticed, too, in looking at your portfolio, you've done a lot of stuff in hardware. And I must admit, that is a category that I find very, very difficult to do. Randy's had a lot of success in it, as he mentioned, with TiVo and Nest. We found it very difficult to do. Can you talk to us about some of the differences between some of your companies that involve hardware and not, and potentially how the investment process is different when you're thinking through those two kinds of companies? Hardware is really hard. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's really hard because to get started, you need a team 
that can build a product that doesn't exist, and that's hard. And it takes time, and it takes money. And say you get to that point where you get to sell an aura ring. Took, I think, five, seven years for that R&D to finally get to the point where you see the ring today. That is the beginning of the marathon. Like, you've just started your business because the business isn't selling rings. It's not selling cameras at Nest. It's selling safety. For Aura, it's selling knowledge of your health with a tool to actually improve it. The hardware is a conduit to the service and the information and ultimately the ability to make changes. And that's what's so hard is that the team that gets the hardware to market is not the team that builds the software for the services and the experience on top of that. And you cannot have a successful company over time with just hardware. I think we've all seen the flame outs of that. Now, if you can get it right and you can build the hardware that has the innovation and you can think about what the services are that are enduring on top of that hardware, then you have a new platform. And when you have a new platform, you've won because the customers are on your platform. I'm, I'm on Nest. I'm not getting off Nest, although Arlo is kind of interesting. But, um, you know, N- Nest is there. It's all over my house. It's on my app. It's I check it 15 times a day, you know, when the mailman's coming through. And and that, that's what makes the business model of hardware plus software so special once it gets over that hump. But, I mean, what a bear to get over that hump. It's so much capital. And I don't know, in this environment, if any hardware companies are going to get funded. It's probably one in which you got to wait for a slightly better market so that people have the patience to say, this is an important enough problem to put in the R&D and to put in the effort. And so you, you hope that at least the product, you know, from a very tactical standpoint, you hope that the product margins are high enough where even as a one product selling sort of experience, you can get margin to be able to continue funding your company um, as you build the software. But from an investor standpoint, there's no interest in a hardware company here. Hmm. It's what is the hardware a conduit for? Um, hmm. that's, that's a long lasting relationship with customers. Yuri, you were at Forerunner since the beginning right? The two of you were there day zero. What's it been like to bring in new professionals and teach them and coach them on the thesis? Talk to us a little bit about what it's like to kind of hire within and grow up your new junior partners to come in and understand kind of the forerunner way. Love to hear about what that process has been like, uh, given the thesis of the fund. You know, team building is also hard. It, It gives you empathy for what our founders are going through, trying to build teams so quickly, trying to integrate everybody so quickly and expand so quickly. We actually, as a team, only added one person per year for the first six years of Forerunner. Mm -hmm. And we did that intentionally because we wanted to stay nimble, because we wanted to preserve our ethos and how we wanted to show up. And it takes time to find the right fit when you're such a small team, you know, the wrong fit makes a a huge difference. And we, we wanted to make sure that the product we were delivering for founders was unique and something we could keep up with and, and deliver time in and, and sort of over time. And what that means is as people come in, you know, the role isn't exactly clear. Just like at a startup, you, you sign the paperwork for one job and the next week you're doing a different job or you're doing three jobs or, or all of a sudden, you know, someone else is coming in and, and things are changing. And so 
as we were growing, it was trying to figure out, well, what is the, what's the job we need today? And then where would that job be going? And how do we bring people in and give them a chance to be apprenticed so that they can learn? And, and as a result, you know, from an investment team perspective, um, we apprentice very closely here. We partner up on you know, pretty much everything, whether it's deal meetings or portfolio companies. We allow for the transfer of knowledge to be really organic. Um, and we do a lot of things in group meetings just so that all of these experiences are shared uh, and, and people can hear and listen because there's no way I could have learned everything I needed to learn at the pace I needed to learn it if Kirsten didn't tell me every single thing that happened in every single meeting or if I wasn't in those meetings with her. But very quickly, we learned how to work together and we learned the nuances of what it took to kind of be that team. And, and that, I think, helped us accelerate forward. And then when Nicole came, it was the same thing. So we've repeated this practice many a times. In 2020, we hired, I think, five or six people. And not only was it COVID, but just we were at a place where we need more for our firm. And so that was definitely growing pains of just figuring out, you know, do we have an employee handbook? Turns out we didn't. <laughs> We didn't need one. There was only four or five of us. And, you know, now you have to start building that all in. And so I think integration is an important thing. In those early days, having that really consistent cultural value, you know, inspiration for why you're here and and what you're a part of is important. But just as startup companies, you need that in the beginning. And then at a certain point, you need people who are functional experts. You need people who have experience of how to, you know, take what you have and grow it. And and it's, it's growing pains for sure. But it's okay. But I do think that if you're trying to just be so controlling over just one way of doing things forever, like that's usually what is the biggest Achilles heel. I think being open-minded to learning and looking at what other firms are doing. There's a lot of firms out there that have huge you know, operational teams and portfolio teams. It's incredible. We just think like, is that the business we want to build? Can, is that what we can keep up with and deliver A plus you know, partnership? Or is there a different way for us to do it with a unique foreigner spin on it? And we're always trying to, you know, do that calculus to say if if yes then we would hire a bunch of people if no then we're hiring one or two specific people and they flex in different ways and they allow us to be nimble so with the billion dollars under management does does your does your job change does how you approach your job change does the sort of deal you're looking for change when we when we came to market in 2012 we were a seed fund because we we only had a 41.6 million dollar fund but that was because the opportunities in market and the types of deals we were looking for were just starting. And so they were only raising $900 million, you know, $1,000 rounds or a $1 million rounds. And the ecosystem was starter, sort of just starting. So you couldn't come out the gates and raise a $500 million fund. I mean, that was preposterous. So you had to start where the market was, which was we were starting a smaller fund, investing in what ostensibly became the seed um, ecosystem and seed sector. Uh, but we never pitched a seed fund. We never said we were going to be seed focused. We always said we were going to be early stage investors with a lens of the consumer investing in both B2B and B2C, but all around the evolving experience that's needed to, to serve consumers over time. And with that, our fund size did grow. We're now investing out of fund six, our institutional fund six, uh, and each one sort of had a step up change. And that was really that that it mapped to the market and how rounds were differing and the best founders were able to raise now $5 million Series A's or or seed rounds. So to lead that, you would need more money and you still wanted to be the partner of choice and you still needed to get your ownership to get your portfolio to make sense. And so we 
we had an open dialogue with our LPs along the way. This was not just about building bigger funds for the sake of it, but rather we're trying to be the same great investors and great partners with this mindset and this focus. And the fund size is going to need to evolve to be able to accomplish that with impact. Now, at the size that we're at, we have flexibility because there's early stage companies that, you know, Mark Laurie is not raising a $3 million round. And so does that mean we can't back him again? Does that mean we can't invest with, you know, multiple time founders who are going to be able to drive different types of rounds? I hope not. Mm-hmm. And now we have the flexibility to, to do that. Also, sometimes there's a market where there's a lot of noise in the early stages. And if we make a pick, we're not picking a competitor down the line. And if it's an industry that we got to get this right, we might decide we'll go in at the A or the B so that we can see a little bit more flush out. And that's just flexibility. And, you know, Randy, I'm sure you've done plenty of conversations around, like, diversity of your portfolio. It's not only the types of companies you're investing in, but it's also the timeline that you invest in. And if they're all seed and they're all 18 months from launch, when your LP asks you how the portfolio is doing, you say, well, no one's launched, it it's, it's an awkward conversation. It's not going to give you the time value that you need to just start to see some momentum. So the larger fund gives us the flexibility we had always wanted that we couldn't have in those earlier days because the market wasn't ready for that. Um, and I think, you know, our investing perspective has certainly been consistent. But, you know, with larger dollars, you're certainly looking for things that are, you know, bigger and bigger ideas. You got to return more and more capital. So, I think the ambition has always been big, but you know now it's sort of very clear that it needs to be a, a defining category maker, not just an iterative um, sort of innovation on the on the fringes. So the portfolio composition has changed or is evolving. I would say is evolving. Mm-hmm. If I look at it, you know, when you think about the the, the composition of dollars, it's been consistently. I would say historically 25 to 30% um, B2B dollars and the, the balance B2C. There have been a couple of funds that have been even up to 40% B2B dollars. So, you know, again, people look at Foreigner and think only B2C companies or consumer, consumer companies. But I think the market has, has really evolved to say, like, hey, the consumers are at companies and like they, they want the same experience both at work and at home. And so, you know, that's really opened up more opportunity in different types of business models. So I I would say that's evolved. And then, you know, early days, we certainly weren't doing a bunch of, you know, later stage rounds, but we have um, put dollars against our best companies in their later stage rounds. Some of that is because we're still on the board and we're still, you know, we're still hopefully relevant in in supporting the companies. And so, you know, that's been evolving over time too. I don't know that we 100%, you know, planned it at fund one that we were still going to be on the board of series D, series E companies. Uh, but it's it's proven to be a great experience and certainly learning for us. And it helps us be better investors at the early stage as a result of understanding the full cycle. Yuri, we started our funds at about the same time. We started end of 2010, 2011, year 2012. Yeah. 
we've been at this you know 10 12 years now obviously your thesis has really stayed very consistent over that period of time a lot of other funds have style drift and you hear those words from lps i'd love your thoughts on over this last 10 or 12 years when we were some of the first people to the seed party for lack of the better word what what are some things that you really think have gotten better and worse you know what what are some lessons learned perhaps on as you've seen the ecosystem evolve over these last 10 12 years what's one thing you like what's one thing you didn't like it's probably the same thing <laughs> probably the same thing you guys feel <laughs> there's a lot of action in this ecosystem and It's great because there are so many more ways to start companies and there's so many more ways to get funding, so much more support for entrepreneurs. It's not in the black box that it used to be. And so there's more access and that's wonderful. What's difficult about it is the noise that it creates. It's a bit of a gold rush. Everyone thinks it's all the rage to go start a company, but we all know how painful it it most of the time is. Even when it's successful, it's still just hard as rocks. And even if you do everything right for nine years, on the 10th year, you could have a market crash and then boom, you're somehow going sideways. So it's just not for the faint of heart. And I think it's somewhat been glorified over the last handful of years. And I I regret that there's a lot of people that are going to get into it that are going to fail. And it's just going to be harder than they ever imagined. But but that's okay. I mean, everyone's got information out there and you got to try it. If you you have passion for it, you got to try it. You know, I do think that with so many other funds in market, you do need to differentiate. You need to be clear about why someone's going to come to you. Why is an LP going to back bullpen? Why is an LP going to back foreigner? And then ultimately, the most important thing is why is a founder going to pick us? And so whether you have a thesis or not, whether it's all based on one personality at your firm or not, like just be clear on it. And the whole firm's got to be aligned around it because I think you need to leverage the strengths that you have. You cannot do everything. Uh, and that's the hardest thing. And I think that's the hardest thing with founders as well is how do you focus? And there's a lot of times we look around and we're like, wow, so-and-so is doing that. That's amazing. Should we be doing that? Should we be doing a podcast? Mm-hmm. I, I don't right, think so. Right. You know, I, I, <laughs> right. I think it's a, it's a lot of hard work. And unless it's really yeah, going to help is. us get better investments and be better at our job, like it's going to be one more thing that I don't do as well as you guys are doing it. So let's just do less but better. Randy, I got to say this. Uh, I got to take a step back for a second. In those early days, I used to joke Josh Koppelman and Jeff Clavier, some of the names you mentioned earlier, hey, there's 20 seed funds. What are you going to do when there's 200? We now have almost 4,000, <laughs> right? When, 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 when my joke was off by oh 20x, it's almost impossible to imagine <laughs> what Yuri just talked about. This explosion is beyond what any of us even jokingly could have guessed back in 2010. It's, it's interesting because I think about that. It was clearly very different when I started in the business. And I, I think about what Paul's saying. And I, I think about when LPs are going to get tired. They are tired. You know that. I mean, they, they should be tired. I mean, if you take a look at returns in this be. industry, forget Forerunner, forget Bullpen, forget Kleiner. If you take a look at returns in the industry, LP should be revolting in terms of what those returns look like, given the lack of liquidity and the time frame for um, returns and the risk, as you point out, in that long 10-year, 12-year gestation. Yep. Frankly, you can make a lot more money on index funds in the public Absolutely. markets, right? Absolutely. And so, and so, I do. My worry, my concern is that the backlash of all of this is that less, fewer funds are successful. Less money comes into the market. 
and great entrepreneurs now find themselves on the other side of the coin. I, I think it's great that we've got sort of a very liquid market for founders today because it means that great that, that innovators can get their ideas at least to the stage of product market fit. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, as you point out, something I've been concerned about for over a decade is the amount of time and talent we're wasting that has no business being in this business. That's a right? true one, Randy. Yeah. On either side, we're wasting yep. great entrepreneurs' time and talent. We're wasting great investors' time and talent. And there will be, you know, in spite of all the capital sitting on the sidelines still trying to get in, there will be a reckoning at some point when LPs finally look at their numbers and go, what the heck are we doing in this business? And why are we giving these guys such large fees for these returns? Absolutely. And I think our, our hope and expectation as optimists and venture investors is that just when it looks so bad, <laughs> the next Google comes. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it could be any of us. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes the story that makes the cycle go again. You know, that's what makes the next Kleiner Perkins and the next Sequoia. And hopefully, you know, we're in that as one of the next forerunners. And it's an incredible honor to be in this industry during a time where it just changes so fast. And it's it's moved so quickly. And I don't know where it's going to go. And I, I would say it, it's kind of funny. I... When I got in, it was certainly not as popular, and I would never have projected when I was younger that I could be a venture investor. I didn't even know what that was. I was a private equity investor. I kind of knew that path. But I feel <laughs> that it is too popular these days to do what we do. Mm -hmm. And when things are popular, they're on their way down. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what is next? Oh, I knew, I knew I liked you as soon as you said that. I mean, that's as contrarian oh. as it gets. It's the Yogi Berra. I, I would never go to that bar. I it's know, too crowded, and I, right? I love it. It's, it feels like way too cool for school. And I was never cool as a kid. So when it's, <laughs> when I'm cool, it's, we're over, we're done. Yeah. Something is wrong. I'm, I'm I, looking I, for what's I, next. I totally agree. And I, I, I heard this phrase years ago during the beginning of the bubble. They refer, someone referred to the group as the tourist VCs. You know, the tourist VCs are in the mm. front row at the, at, at, at the demo days. I was like, yeah, it'll be a lot better when the tourist VCs are gone. Well, it's 12 years later and they're still here. Well, and I might say that this, this market reckoning we're talking about, Randy, in this ominous way, that will be the sign of where the market really is. Who's still in here? Who's now out with their, you know, picks and shovels going, okay, I'm looking for gold now. Everyone's gone. There's got to right. be something left here and something new happening. And so we all just need to do what we do, which is to be patient, to be long-term investors. Um, and, and going back to the, the title of this podcast, which I think you probably need to change because we talked about so many other topics. But, you know, thesis is that if you have a thesis, then whatever happens in the interim years doesn't matter. If you feel like the consumer or us, if we feel like the consumer is moving in one direction, there's no way that there can't be successful companies at scale that matter for the next generation. It's not possible. So we're going to stay in the game, and you guys are going to stay in the game, and you know, we'll see who else does. Well, that's incredibly well said and, and inspiring. And I think what's, what I've learned a lot here is that you're, you've defined thesis in a way that I don't normally see it defined. I see it defined in a much more focused way, generally. You know, it's about a particular technology or a particular platform. But having a thesis around new experiences for new generations as they move into their 
uh, buying years and into their um, establishment years um, and into their later years. That thesis is an enduring thesis, and I really am impressed by that. Well, thank you so much. We hope so. That is the one tip, though. I mean, if you have a thesis and it's very specific, what are you going to do when that thesis is over? Exactly. you got to have a new thesis. So you need to start thinking about how to make the thesis not so, not focused enough to be clear, not so focused as to limit you. Because no matter what, you still want to be able to invest in the best companies. And if it's not exactly AI related, then are you going to miss it? And, And maybe the answer is yes. And that's okay, but you got to know that so that when your LP says, hey, why did you miss XYZ company? You're like, well, you know what? That is just completely outside our focus area, you know, and, and that's what you stand on. And that's what hopefully lets you sleep at night. Amen. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And look, I mean, as much as we drifted a bit from from the, the thesis of thesis, that's what Lunch Pail is all about. What we just talked about, Yuri, it's all about the nuts and bolts of how you guys run your firm. And we really want to thank you for taking this time to join us on Lunchpail VC. I'm Paul Martino from Bullpen Capital. And uh, on behalf of Randy Comasar, I want to thank you for your time. Randy? It's such a pleasure. Yuri, it's so great to meet you. Great to meet you, too. And thanks for having me on the show, guys. Lunchpail VC was created by Paul Martino and me, Randy Commissar. It was produced by the team at Edit Audio. If you want to follow more of our guest journey, check out the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to give a review and tell your budding VC friends to listen to us. They might learn something. I know I did. I'm Randy Commissar. See you next time.